Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonus, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, just visit Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural, and this week we have an episode that deals with a private military school. It was founded in 1844, 46 acres in a town in Missouri called Boonville. It closed in 2002 after declaring bankruptcy, and its motto was Nunquam non paratus, never not prepared. Just to clarify, let's not confuse this with the Missouri Training School for Boys in the same town of Boonville, which was established in 1889. It was a reformatory institution referred to as a hellhole, a viper's nest, and a study in sadism. Although it started with good intentions, it quickly became one of the most feared institutions in the state. It was often used to threaten misbehaving children, as in, if you don't behave, they'll send you up the river to Boonville. Now back to Kemper. It was established by Frederick T. Kemper, who gave his first lesson at the Boonville Boarding School, originally a one-room, all-male school set up to educate the sons of the frontier West. From the beginning, it was a success. By 1845, it was both a classroom and a boarding school. It was one of the few to remain open during the Civil War because Kemper chose to be neutral during the war and accepted female students for the first time. However, Kemper's brother, James L. Kemper, was a general in the Confederate Army. After the war, Taylor, Kemper's brother-in-law, who he had partnered with, left, and the school once more became all-male. Kemper ran it as the Kemper Family School until 1881 when he died. After that, Colonel Thomas A. Johnston, a former student, became president of the school after Kemper's death and he established the school's national reputation and transitioned it to a military school. In 1899, the school changed its name to Kemper Military School and advertised itself as the West Point of the West. It was in the last decade of the 19th century that Will Rogers attended the school, and in 1928, Colonel Johnston retired and his son-in-law, Colonel Arthur M. Hitch, took over. During World War II, the school operated year-round with over 500 students. During Colonel Hitch's time, the stadium and football fields were constructed in 1937, and he retired in 1948. Colonel Harris Johnston, Colonel Johnston's son, became the new superintendent, and he stayed in this position until 1956. It was this year that the school went nonprofit, and the leadership went from the old guard and became less stable. For 112 years, 
only four men led the school. After 1956, no superintendent served for more than a few years. This instability had very negative effects starting in the early 1970s, when many military academies were facing a backlash due to the Vietnam War. In 1976, only 89 cadets were enrolled. That's piled up, and in order to get enrollment up, they decided in those years to admit female students and implementing more liberal admissions policies. By 2002, enrollment was down to 124 students and the school could not pay its bills. Graduates from Kemper were known as old boys. Just like any place that's stood for over a hundred years, it's bound to have its stories of hauntings, ghostly happenings, and who knows what else crept along all those dank halls as the buildings grew older and older. And here are some of the things that happened to some of those cadets during all those years. It could be any one of them or all of them, but who knows? For example, in 1901, William Shattuck, he was a Kemper cadet, ran away and, however, found death when he was caught between two car trains. Then in 1902, Bunchy Corleys died from injuries received during a football game. He laid in state at Kemper Academy. Eight of his companions were the pallbearers. He was 18 years old and was the son of W.R. Corleys, a wealthy citizen of Boonville. Then just a few years later, in 1911, 90 Kemper students established an insurrecto camp two miles from the school because two fellow students were expelled after staying away from the school overnight. Their demands was to have their schoolmates readmitted. The superintendent of the school refused to deal with the group and would only speak to individuals. They were sleeping in a barn loft and cooking their meals by a campfire. They soon ran out of money and couldn't buy any food. But that story just goes to show how strict Kemper was about their admissions and about making sure that students did exactly what they were told. Then in January of 1924, Joseph Rush Quimberly Jr. and Jesse Merwin Hawkins, both of them were from Louisiana and traveling by train with other students returning to Kemper after the Christmas holiday. A dispute started over a pipe and Wimberly shot Hawkins with a 38 revolver killing him instantly. A few months later he was acquitted of murder based on the argument of self-defense. Both boys were only 15 or 16 years of age. Then only two years later Frank Ryden, a cadet at Kemper, caught influenza which worsened into pneumonia and he died age 18. That same year that Ryan died, two students who escaped from Kemper, aka ran away from Kemper, it's unknown if they were found or returned voluntarily to the school. There was a small blurb in the local newspapers that Kemper was looking for them. As you can see, just because you were young didn't guarantee you were going to stay above ground. Then in March of 1935, Carl Steinke, 17, a cadet at Kemper, became ill and died after a weekend trip to the Lake of the Ozarks. Now, as I said before, Will Rogers, who attended Kemper in the 1890s, died in August of 1935. The plane he was traveling in crashed in Alaska. When he was a student at Kemper, he ran away, and his confidant was a janitor by the name of Gottlieb Hamel. He knew that Rogers was planning to leave, 
the boy gave Hamel a trunk containing his books, uniforms, and other items. And then strangely, two years after Will Rogers was killed in the plane crash, Hamel died after being gored by a bull. Then, in 1936, Frank Bowman Powell Jr. died of blood poisoning from a leg infection. Then in 1939, the alumni at Kemper, who were from the best families, had the son of Pennsylvania's governor, his name was Arthur H. James Jr., attending. In September of that year, the school year had barely started when they rushed young Arthur to the hospital. He was being operated for appendicitis. However, he died due to complications from a throat infection following the operation. Then, 1946 was an eventful year at Kemper. It started on April 3rd. George D. Brooks, 17, a red-headed cadet, disappeared from Kemper on February 5th, and no one had seen or heard from him after this date. His parents, who lived in Delaware, were desperate and met every train and every bus, hoping he would be on it. They reported his disappearance to police a few days after it occurred and distributed posters to police departments in the region, but no trace or word was forthcoming. In April, the boy's parents went to Kemper to bring home his clothes and belongings. It seemed that before Christmas, he had been a victim of extreme hazing and had been badly beaten at the hands of fellow pupils. His parents learned of it later, but not from him. Before he disappeared, he had been in the school hospital ill with flu. He came home for the holiday vacation, and his weight had dropped from 166 to 151. This was according to school records. His mother recalled that he wouldn't eat and was terribly nervous. He just walked the floor all the time, she said. But he told his parents everything was all right. His grades were satisfactory, and Major Clark, who was the school commandant, reported that he was adjusting himself nicely. Then on January 27th, his father received a telegram that his son had, quote, deserted because of a penalty assessment, end quote. The penalty had been for 25 hours of walking in the bullpen for lighting a cigarette outside of regular smoking hours. It had been reported by a fellow pupil. In other words, he got snitched on. Colonel Hitch assumed he ran away to avoid the penalty, but his parents said he never attempted to avoid punishment. They believed he had been subjected to prolonged grudge hazing throughout the entire first term. Then after Christmas, he was under a student officer who liked him, and the infraction which was common and seldom reported, proved to his parents that his persecutors were still after him. Mrs. Brooks said, He was hounded out of school. He never left voluntarily because he wanted to stay. Major Clark admitted that he had been beaten before Christmas and the boys who took part in it had been severely punished. He was confident no hazing had occurred after Christmas. George did tell his roommate he was leaving, but the boy didn't believe him but George went to the school bank and took out all of his money. He asked the commandant for his suitcase, stating he wanted to take it home. The roommate told his parents. He was worried all that day. That night, George attended a basketball game. Later that night, the roommate woke up to see George was up and dressed and said something like goodbye. That was the last seen or heard from George. The school did not report his absence except to his parents and they had made no effort to help find him. This is what his mother said. According to Colonel Hitch, when a student deserted the school, 
once he was off the grounds, he became his parents' responsibility. However, it turned out that Major Clark was a classmate of Mr. Brooks at Drury College and that he made every effort to investigate what led to George leaving. He talked to every boy on the hall in the barracks, to every boy from Springfield, and to anybody he thought could throw light on the situation. He said there was nothing he could find out. How true that was remains unknown. And it's strange to say that George's family had a history with Kemper because his grandfather, George McLaughlin, was a student 55 years before. Now, after the story of his disappearance was published, it wasn't until April that a friend of George told his parents that he had seen George in Topeka, Kansas. The parents went with the police to Topeka and found him working at the Grant department store. He had hitchhiked from the school to Topeka, but would not discuss what happened to him at Kemper. George did go on to join the military and received rank as technical sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. He participated in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. He died in 1992, age 63. As to what they did to him that first term in Kemper, no one ever knew. Then, in September of 1946, Martin Doan, 19, a junior at Kemper, died after he contracted polio. Now, not every boy that went to Kemper went on to a distinguished career, or at the very least, not to become a scourge on society, and then there were others who made the headlines, but for all the wrong reasons. There was a one-time Kemper student named Carl Austin Hall. He was involved in a kidnapping crime in 1953. He, along with a woman named Bonnie Brown Hetty, kidnapped Bobby Greenlease. They took the six-year-old from the school he was attending. Bonnie Hetty pretended to be his aunt and told a nun who was at the school that Bobby's mother had suffered a heart attack. They released the boy to her. The couple demanded $600,000 in ransom, which they received. They promised to return the boy. The parents didn't know. The boy was killed soon after the abduction and the body was buried near Bonnie Hetty's house in St. Joseph, Missouri. They had shot the child in the head. The murderers went off to St. Louis, Missouri. Hetty was an alcoholic and Hall deserted her in St. Louis after she fell asleep. He left her only $2,000 in her purse of the 600000 they had received. Eventually, the FBI was involved and they found the boy's body on October 7, 1953. It was wrapped in a plastic bag and lime had been poured over it. On November 19th, only a month later, a jury recommended the death penalty after deliberating a little more than an hour. Within 15 minutes, the judges sentenced them to be executed on December 18th, 1953. In those years, if you were caught, you were brought to trial, sentenced, and executed within a matter of months. Both were executed together in Missouri's gas chamber, sitting side by side at the state penitentiary in Jeffersonville. They died within 20 seconds of each other. Half of the $600,000 has never been found. Now, in a queer twist, Paul Greenlees, which was Bobby's older half-brother, had attended Kemper Military School, and he was a schoolmate of Carl Austin Hall. However, Paul Greenlees had died of a brain hemorrhage in 1964, and Hall later on admitted that he'd come up with a kidnapping scheme at the time that he had met Paul Greenlee Sr., 
who was a wealthy Cadillac executive. In other words, Carl Austin Hall came up with the idea of this kidnapping years in advance when he was a cadet at Kemper. Then in 1958, another former Kemper student made the headlines. His name was Johnny Stampanato, who graduated from the military school in 1942. He joined the Marines and later became an enforcer for the Cohen crime family. In the 50s, he was in an abusive relationship with actress Lana Turner. Her 17-year-old daughter, Cheryl Crane, stabbed him in order to protect her mother from a vicious beating. A coroner's inquest returned a decision of justifiable homicide. According to Kemper classmates, he was recalled as, quote, a ladies' man and also something of a prankster. Once he put a dynamite cap in a pop bottle, filled it with water, and tossed it out of a third-floor window in B barracks. Disciplinary officers talked to him about that, end quote. Then in 1960, a student from Kemper held up a photo supply store, wearing, of all things, the blue military school uniform. He took $132 and told the manager, quote, I'm not kidding, I haven't eaten in two days, end quote. Police received a missing persons report from Kemper about the student who had not reported to school after the Christmas recess, although he had left home. Nothing else was known about this boy. One has to wonder, did he go through some type of hazing, just like George Brooks had done so many years before? Then, in 1962, Stephen Sanders claimed to set a new record for continuous twist dancing. It lasted for 15 hours, which beat the previous record of 13 hours. He went on to become a Green Beret and passed away in 2013. Then, in the 1980s, within a week of each other, two Kemper students were murdered. This is how the Chicago Tribune reported it. The students and faculty of Kemper Military School and College, the oldest military school west of the Mississippi River, are trying to cope with the murder of two cadets in separate incidents in a three-day span. We're trying to put this behind us, said Roger Harms, the president of Kemper. On February 2nd, the body of cadet Brandon Goosehard, 17, was found by police in Lincoln, Nebraska. He was shot to death along with his brother, sister, and parents. According to Lincoln police, Brandon's father apparently murdered his wife and two children on the evening of January 30th. Then, under the pretext of a family emergency, the elder Goosehard drove to Columbia, Missouri to pick up his son, who was there on a visit. Goosehard then drove his son, who was to be honored February 6th as the outstanding young cadet at Kemper, back to the family's home where he shot him and then turned the gun on himself. Police said Goosehart was $200,000 in debt. Upon learning of the death of Goosehart, the school planned a memorial service for February 4th. However, that was cut short when Jane C. Ray, a 19-year-old cadet from Charleston, West Virginia, was reported to Boonville Police as a missing person as of February 1st. Her body was later found in a wooded area of the Kemper campus only a few hours before the service for Goosehard was to begin. She apparently was beaten to death, police said. Cadet Mark E. Johnson, 19, of Denver, Ray's boyfriend was arrested on February 5th and charged with the murder. Harms canceled the memorial service for Goosehard when he learned of the second murder. He said the school wasn't planning any special service and he preferred to let the cadets remember Goosehard and Ray in their own way. For most of the cadets, death is confined to the battlefields. 
they might encounter in future military career, not something that visited their campus twice in one week. Harms, retired army colonel, said he hoped the two tragedies would bring his family, as he liked to call the cadets, closer. Later on, there were three cadets who were friends of Mark Johnson, despite the charges he was facing. They told the newspaper reporter, quote, he never raised a fist. He was so calm, said one cadet. He never hated anybody. The cadet said many students are having difficulty dealing with the murder. It was demoralizing. We're having a hard time getting the motivation we had before. They also said about Brandon. He was a real quiet guy. He never talked much, but he made really good grades. Mark Johnson, who was arrested for the murder of Cadet Ray, was eventually convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Now, the following are stories of encounters or secondhand stories appearing on different blogs throughout the internet. All of this happening supposedly at Kemper. These could include possible candidates for ghostly sightings reported throughout the years by students and those who have visited the grounds. Now, this is the first story. Okay, Kemper folk, I have a story and I'm hoping someone might have some info. This is a 100% true and I'd like to know if anyone could cooperate it. My stay at Kemper was short, February through commencement, May 12th of 2001. I think maybe 2002. At that time, the barracks above the mess hall was closed off. A giant wall was constructed in front of the staircase. I remember stories of Sergeant Sloan's office, which opened to a balcony of sorts right above the mess hall, visible from the main yard where we met every morning and kids in trouble had to walk the square for hours. Myself and three others, there were two twins from Jersey, if I recalled, scaled some walls, grabbed some fire escape ladders, and climbed our way into those upper floors of that mess hall building. I believe it was e-barracks, but I can't remember exactly. Anyway, we checked out the abandoned barracks, mostly rooms with messes strewn about, bed torn open, everywhere. I mean, what else would you expect? We'd heard the stories of the old boy ghosts, that would come inspect your uniform if you stood at attention, and how if you slid an old boy pin across the floor, the doors would slap shut or whatever. Cool stories, but we were too scared to try it. Also, none of us were old boys, I don't think. So we stumbled on a door with a padlock, and the sign of the door says Sergeant Sloan. No surprise, because we had heard about it before. A few rooms down, we found a shoebox with about a 100 keys in it. Someone, I think me, but you know how memory goes. Thought maybe we could find the serial number on the lock to Sergeant Sloan's office and match it to a key in the box and gain entrance. That's what we did, and it worked. So, here's where it gets weird. In Sloan's office was a window, a desk, and a cage. It looked as if nothing had been touched since the 80s. The cage, though, sat about waist high with a weird pulley mechanism with a light bulb that would shine into a poem about entering the underworld. What was in the cage? About 60% of a human skeleton, about three feet tall, suspended by what looked like fishing wire to make up the shape of the skeleton, but with many pieces obviously missing. I can't remember what the poem or writing was about or how the pulley system and light bulb worked, but it was super bizarre and definitely dark. The only thing I could come up with was maybe there was a truth to the little boy Kemper stories. Now, this was only referenced 
on MySpace, which is very outdated, and that supposedly Sloan was a big fan, to say the least. Anyway, we locked up the room to make it look like we had never been there and went about our day. If I recall, one of us kept a padlock key, but I don't know what happened to it. I know I had it hidden in my room for a while. So, anyway, I've told friends this story for years, and I believe they believe I'm lying. I am not. I could name the names of my accomplices, but no thank you. Basically, I just want to know what Sloan was up to up there and why he had a child skeleton in a cage with a cultic writing on it. Also, there were rumors that skull and bone type rituals were taking place at Kemper. Now, the following is another story that talks about the fact that at some point Kemper was haunted by a ghostly female cadet who was killed along the track. Her apparition has been spotted jogging around the track but disappears when it reaches the spot where she was killed. The AC and D barracks are also known to be haunted. In the A barracks, a Civil War soldier has been spotted in a doorway and footsteps and shadows have been seen. In the C barracks, there have been reports of unexplained footsteps. And in the D barracks, a ghostly form has been spotted standing in the window of a closed door. Now, these are remarks left by former students. 1. I lived there for four years. The entire campus is haunted. Next one. I went out and did an EVP in 2020. What I captured was a loud growl. It definitely wasn't human. Another entry. I lived in Boonville and used to manage the maintenance department for Kemper Military School. And on two different mornings when I came to the office, I saw the girl by the pond. She was just standing there with her back to me. The first time I saw her, I said, hey, and she disappeared. The second time I left her alone. Next entry. I lived in D barracks on the second floor and top floor. I resided at Kemper for three years, from 1996 to 1999. I never once saw anything haunted the entire time, though I do know the stories. In fact, the rope used by a girl who hung herself near the back soccer football field is still hanging there. Next entry. I was there in the fall of 1997 to December 2000. Saw some wild things, like the entity... That was supposedly on the closed floor. I saw that in 99, and the girl hanging was true. So were the mess hall shootings, all of which happened before I was there. This was written by old boy James Collins. As an aside, I could not find any reference to the girl who hung herself under the bridge or any type of shootings at the mess hall. Next entry, D Barracks. You can sometimes see figures in the windows at night that was closed down. These are believed to be the ghosts of the cadets who died in the infirmary in the early days, late 1800s and early 1900s, because medicine was not advanced enough to treat them. In the old band barracks, there is a ghost clad in black known as a shadow. It is seen in the hallway and will open windows and slam doors. You can also hear footsteps walking the floor. In the A barracks, there's a Civil War soldier seen in a doorway. In the D barracks, the ghost of a cadet that was killed from a hazing can be seen standing in the window at night time. This was at a time when the barracks were closed. On the old bridge leading to the golf course, the ghost of a female cadet that was killed in the late 1980s, this was Cadet Ray, can be seen. A spirit of a cadet was murdered in the kitchen area is also haunting there. The following was excerpted from the book Haunted U.S. Battlefields, Ghost, Hauntings, 
and eerie events from America. Throughout its 100 plus years, students at camp reported different ghosts. One of them is an apparition dressed in old fashioned uniform dating to the Civil War. He appeared in a certain doorway in the old band barracks. He would appear suddenly when cadets would be relaxing. He was described as short, with a mustache, dark hair and eyes that gleamed like two black pebbles in his face. He was semi-transparent, and once the cadets were looking at him, he would raise his arm in a salute and then disappear. Many believe the ghost was one of the casualties of the Boonville races, which took place at the beginning of the Civil War. There's a cast of dozens who could be one of the many ghosts that are seen at Kemper or were seen since it's closed now. And I'm sure there's stories that never came to light, never went to print. Things that happened, what they say, behind closed doors that might have caused those hauntings. And whatever is there maybe stays there, even though part of the buildings have been destroyed. Now let's get on to the good part. Let's get into some other ghost stories about military schools, military. There's a lot of ghosts, so... Hold on, here we go. The first ghost story involves, of all places, West Point, and specifically a room. It was room 4714. It's back in 1972, and a rash of unusual sightings stirred up a great deal of interest in West Point. They were considered so credible, the sightings, that a psychic was actually brought in, and one of the barracks room, you know which one that is, remains empty to this day. Now, West Point was founded in 1802, and it's one of the most well-known and prestigious military academies in America. Most people know because of its high standards and military excellence. However, during the early 70s, there's something that happened to Jim O'Connor. He was a freshman at the time, and he had his first encounter with something. During a late night trip to Latrine, he recalls several events that occurred from the toilet paper unrolling itself, water faucet turning on and off by itself, to actually seeing a full body operation within a matter of minutes. He only described it as a man wearing an 1823 cavalry uniform and that he wielded a Civil War era musket complete with bayonet and what stood out to him the most were the eyes or more accurately the lack of eyes. He was quoted as saying, I was caught up with the eyes. They were white. They glowed and they had no discernible color. During this instance the apparition dissipated and eventually disappeared just as quickly as it had appeared. Being a first-year student, when all of this happened, he wasn't looking to bring any attention to himself and his roommate, who by now had experienced some sightings of his own. He didn't need to wait long for others to back up his story with at least five additional reports of this entity that occurred within the next few days. John Feely, he was another cadet, woke up one morning with a crushing feeling as though someone was sitting on his chest. When he looked, that's when he too saw the white-eyed entity right on top of him. 
that Civil War era, or maybe even earlier, that soldier. He tried to sit up, but was unable to do so until it disappeared. By this time, word had gotten out, and it was well known by everyone that something was happening in the 47th Division barracks. According to articles, there was even an attempt to exorcise the room. They even went to the point of bringing in Gene Dixon, a psychic, very well known for predicting the assassination of John F. Kennedy. She visited West Point in order to try and spiritually cleanse a room. 4714, that was the room number. Dixon's visit was cut short when, according to eyewitness accounts, she was unexplainably lifted off the floor, thrown from the room, and she never visited the academy again. Following these events, room 4714 was no longer allowed to be used as a barracks room and was said to have been converted into a small study area. Throughout the 70s, reports of this entity continued sporadically here and there. And to this day, there have been sightings of the ghost, with some healthy debate from those who attend the academy as to just how haunted the now-converted barracks room is. As for O'Connor, he still stands by everything he said, but you'll never catch him using the G-word. The following is stories about Wentworth Military Academy, also in Missouri. It closed in 2017. So this first person account was prior to its closing, and it starts out, I'm currently a cadet at the academy. I've been here for the last three years. In my time here, I've seen and heard numerous strange things I'm still unable to describe. I first lived in Sanford Cellars, then Tilliston. Then I lived in East Barracks, and I'm currently Cellars again. I can say that I have been everywhere on the campus numerous times, including the ceiling of the chapel, the bell tower of Hickman, the attic of East Barracks, the tunnels under the campus, including the tunnels under Hickman, Groendike, and the academic building. Me and my friends sometimes would go out in the middle of the night ghost hunting to see if we could find anything spooky. Our first year I was living in cellars in room 303 on the third floor and I was laying under my desk taping a power strip under my desk to hold it there. Me and my roommate had just moved in and he had left the room. I reached for some tape, set it down next to me and then reached for it again and it wasn't there. I started to look cause I thought it had to have rolled away under the bed, but it wasn't there when I looked. My roommate came in and asked what was wrong, and I asked him if he'd taken it, and he said no, he wasn't even in the room. So I began to freak out a bit, started to tear my room apart, almost determined to find this tape. I found it on the opposite side of the room, taped against the wall under my roommate's bed, behind some boxes after I had just set it down after getting some tape. Another time I was hanging out my side room, smoking about a week later and it was very late at night. My roommate was asleep and I looked over at him then looked back across the quad at Tillotson and there was someone standing on the quad in their class A's with a snare drum and they looked at me, then did a right face and started to march and play the drum lightly toward East Barracks, then disappeared, and I couldn't see them anymore or hear the drum. 
and I was staying in East Barracks. I lived on the first floor, and in the middle of the night, there are no lights in the hall to illuminate the hallway at night. And you can hear people in leathers or coriframs running up and down the hall, and I've looked and seen no one. I knew the last person that was here for eight years. He just graduated two years ago. He told me a story of how this kid stabbed his roommate because he took his drawer out of his dresser and then sat there and cut himself until the police came. My friend's roommate had taken the drawer when there were two people to a room. He woke up and there was someone in his door frame yelling, give me back my drawer. He woke up his roommate and there was no one there. I've seen orbs all over campus and also when you stand on the stage in the chapel and call the battalion to attention, some of the seats are supposed to come up because of the corps standing up in the chapel. I've done it before with my friend and it worked a fourth time. One of the seats in the top upper level started to bounce up and down twice. Freaked us out and we all ran away back upstairs in cellars. It's also said that on rainy nights when there is a full moon or about every 23 days, something weird happens. When it rains really hard and there's a full moon at around 3 a.m., if you look down at the helicopter between where Marine Hall used to be and East Barracks used to be at, the helicopter major Bill Adams, the Vietnam soldier that was shot down and given the Medal of Honor, his daughter, or a little boy, stands outside the front of the helicopter saluting it supposedly staring at the letter that had never been opened written by him to his daughter before he died. I have seen someone doing it once one night through binoculars was one of the weirdest things I've seen probably because the other three people in the room all looked and said that there was someone standing in front of the helicopter saluting. I have seen many and heard many of the things that have been described by other people on different sites. I personally am still not sure I believe in most of it. I'm sure there are logical explanations for most of it, but some things just have blown my mind and given me many frightened nights at this academy. Another entry. I was a cadet at Wentworth Military Academy from 1983 to 85. I was a new boy in Charlie Company from 83 to 84. I visited the school in 2009 and found the building padlocked and boarded up. Charlie Company barracks overlooked the football stadium. I lived on the third floor. One night, after returning from a sporting event quite late in the evening, my roommate was asleep. I got settled and fell asleep as well. At some point in the middle of the night, I woke up for no apparent reason. There was a figure standing beside my bed. I could have reached out and touched it. I lay there with my head tilted up and just stared. I never saw its face or feet. Oddly, I wasn't scared, but I was awestruck and breathless. The figure, which appeared to be wearing a silk shroud, just stood there looking down at me for at least 15 or 20 seconds. Then it began to move across the room towards the corner and was gone. I felt right back to sleep but remembered it vividly when I woke up in the morning. Very detailed memories. I never saw it again. Another entry. I was a cadet at Wentworth Military Academy in Lexington, Missouri last school year. I lived in East Barracks. One night at about 11 o'clock, 
p.m. my friend, a cadet, and myself went down to Foxtrot Circle, near the woods on the eastern side of the campus, next to the tennis courts, when we saw an orb. When we looked closer, we saw an apparition of a little boy, maybe 11 years old, hiding behind a tree. It was almost like he was playing hide-and-seek with us. He would peek out from behind the giant oak and then pull his head back and hide again. When we went closer, we discovered that he was not there anymore. We looked back in the woods and saw an orb heading back down towards the creek. A few weeks later, me and my roommate went down to Foxtrot Circle to smoke, and we saw two children sort of glowing, who also seemed like they were playing hide-and-seek. I had heard stories of a house that used to be back in the woods that burned down in the early 1860s, killing two children and also their mother. Their father was so sad that he hung himself from a tree nearby the ruins of his house. Another entry. While I was at Wentworth, a friend of mine found an old book in the library that had pictures of paranormal things around campus. One photo was taken by a family who was with their son, who was a cadet at Wentworth. The family was having a picture taken of the boy and his father outside of Marine Hall before it was destroyed. In the corner of the picture, you can see a translucent young man in the Wentworth uniform from a long time before the picture was taken. The story regarding that boy was that in the early 1900s, a boy jumped off the roof of Marine Hall and killed himself because he couldn't handle the hazing from the other cadets and that his parents always left him on campus during vacations. The book said it was right after a parade, so he was still in his class A uniform. About Wentworth Military Academy. Hickman Hall, I think 1995 or 96. One year, every room door in Hickman Hall slammed open in the whole barracks. It was in the middle of the night, and no one could explain how all the doors did that all at once. The company that lived in there at the time was Golf Company. It was made up of all the RHE recruits at training cadets, newbies who knew nothing of the school. The only ones that had been there for a while were the cadre officers put there to train the newbies. One year, I was with three other cadets passing Hickman at night, and one of the cadets I was with froze, looked in the doors of the closed lock barracks, and then darted toward the other end of campus. We found him in a bush cowering. He said he saw a dark shadow in the stairwell, and it stopped, turned, and looked at him, and all he saw was red eyes on a shadow. It took us forever to calm him down. Sanford Sellers Hall. There were stories of the ghost Tack, a former Tack officer who would enter room when cadets were sleeping to check in on them and would also roam the second floor halls to make sure all was well. He only wore trench coat and officer's hat. No face or legs were seen. The Scholastic Building. It is said that lights in the top right floor near the lab would come on all by themselves even after rounds had been made and the building was secure and locked. When it was investigated, there was nothing there and the lights would be off. Also, footsteps would be heard in the night when rounds were being made to make sure the building was secure. If you were on the bottom floor, you would hear footsteps on the second floor. The library there was home to a Civil War officer who would protect it. Practice Parade Field, said to have a single figure of a soldier who would appear in the middle of the parade field and then turn and walk into the woods behind the field house and disappear. 
soccer field behind East Barracks. There have always been reports of a band company seen there in the middle of the night. And if you saw it, you could hear cadence being played softly. The band would be in their barracks asleep every time this happened. And the instruments were all locked up in the band room. Green Dye called. The basement had a cadet dressed in spats and was said to walk up and down the old JROTC hall without making noises. I was at the top of the building one night when three cadets came bolting up the stairs pale and scared. They all spoke at once and told me that they saw an old style cadet walking toward them and they could see right through him. Next entry. I'm currently a cadet at Wentworth and I've seen many hauntings. One was when me and a few friends checked out one night we decided to go over to Hickman Hall since we heard all these stories. Well, the main door was locked so we went around to some of the windows. We saw the third floor person and when I pointed them out they seemed to move behind the window to where we couldn't see them. Another one was when I was B.O., a messenger person for staff. I had to go to East Barracks one night. I went down there and I was walking where Marine Hall was and I thought I heard footsteps. So I looked and there wasn't anyone there. As I was almost to the Scholastic building when I stopped and I saw a shadow in front of me that looked like the kid was in his dress blues. The following stories come from Marion Military Institute in Marion, Alabama. One of the entry states I attended MMI from 1995 to 97, and I experienced some strange things around campus. I was a boarding student and didn't have a car, so I mostly stayed there on the weekends, and it was very boring. We would go explore the campus at night and frequently got under the chapel, where there are some old abandoned rooms. There were some tunnels throughout the city that were used by the Confederate Army during the Civil War to fortify the town, but we were too scared to venture very far into them because they looked unsafe. For anyone reading this, do not go into the tunnels. They're 160 plus years old. You could get killed. Since we weren't allowed to smoke on campus, we were constantly on the lookout for faculty and staff walking around whenever we're trying to sneak a smoke. We would sometimes hear the distinct sound of footsteps coming close to us and we would immediately stomp out our cigarettes so we wouldn't get caught, only to find that no one was there. This happened on numerous occasions during my time at MMI. It wasn't a figment of our imagination. The footsteps were real, but no one was there. The chapel, the oldest building on campus, was used as an army hospital to treat wounded soldiers during the Battle of Selma, and many succumbed to their wounds. Once they died, they were immediately buried in a makeshift cemetery behind the chapel. Some cadets said that they would randomly smell ether, which was used in hospitals for no reason at all. I lived in Wilkerson Hall and always seemed to wake up around 3 a.m. for no apparent reason. This also happened to many other cadets. Perhaps 3 a.m. is something significant that I'm not aware of. When I slept off campus, this never happened to me. It only occurred on campus. The following is just plain old military ghost story. And it starts like this. As a Marine, I used to have the graveyard patrol shift at the Beirut Bombing Memorial. Part of the memorial is dedicated to a veteran cemetery. Oddly enough, I never got freaked out being completely alone in a remote cemetery in the middle of the night, surrounded by dense woods on all sides. It was actually kind of peaceful, to be honest. 
However, one night I was patrolling near the perimeter fence where some of the oldest headstones are when I heard the sound of a woman humming. I followed the sound and noticed a light glowing through the vines and brush of a large tree. As I approached, I could literally feel my hair beginning to lift as if there was an electric current in the air. I pushed aside the brush and what I saw nearly took my breath away. It was an old weathered headstone with a large cross etched into the marble. Only the cross was glowing a bright vivid blue like a neon bulb. The humming was also suddenly much louder and had a weird plurality to it like it was coming from hundreds of voices at once. Needless to say, I freaked the F out. I screamed like a scared little girl and sprinted back to the parking lot. I radioed the guard who was supposed to relieve me and forced him to come early, then spent the rest of my shift in the cab of his truck. I don't think he believed me, but he stayed in his truck and didn't go out on patrol until the sun was fully up. A few days later, I worked up the nerve to return to the grave. During the day, of course. So I suspected in the light of day, it was a completely mundane headstone. There was no name, only the aforementioned cross. I ran my hands over the stone and checked to see if maybe there was some sort of hidden light source or solar panel, but no. It was just plain, solid, unremarkable stone. The humming was gone, too. I eventually returned to my normal shift, but never again experienced anything out of the ordinary. I never learned whose grave that was either, but I find myself thinking about it from time to time. It certainly sounds absurd when I say it out loud. I suppose it could have been a hallucination or a trick of my tired brain, but I don't believe it was. I think it was real, a ghost or spirit of some sort, but I don't think it was malevolent at all. Next story. I was by myself in the engine room of a submarine on the mid-watch, just a newly reported sailor trying to find equipment so I could display knowledge to one of the watchstanders. There are a number of bays in engine room lower level with narrow passages that pass through the center. I came down one of the ladders and I swore I saw someone walk across the ship about 15 feet in front of me. I could hear his footsteps as he walked around a corner and out of sight. Three problems. One, he was wearing utilities in an older light blue blouse and dark navy slacks. Nobody had utilities anymore. They had been phased out three years earlier. Two, there was only one other person awake in the engine room that late at night and he was standing at the top of the ladder behind me, waiting for me to come back up with an answer to his question. Three, he wasn't actually there. I wrote it off as sleep deprivation, but I'll admit it shook me for a while. Fast forward to four months later. I had gone out to sea with another submarine of the same type. While I was there, I met a sailor who had previously served on my ship. After a few weeks of standing watch with him, he told me a story of a sailor who had committed suicide while on watch when he served on my ship almost a decade earlier, in engine room lower level, in his utilities. I wish I could have gotten a picture of the look on my face. I'm sure it was a definition of disbelief. Next story. This is my dad's story. After he was done in Vietnam, he soon stationed at an Air Force base in Greenland. They had bad blizzards often there and when they came through the base shut down and every section of the barracks would take roll call. These blizzards were intense. There were cables running between all the buildings you attached to your person 
with a carabiner so if there was a sudden white, you didn't get lost and die. They had people die literally 20 meters from shelter because they got lost in bad weather and froze. He said for about five months, every time they locked down for weather, they would hear horrendous screaming outside. Everyone was accounted for, so they didn't risk sending anyone out to investigate. They wrote it off as an animal. However, every time this was heard, the engine room would be wrecked. Tools everywhere, paperwork all over the floor, tables and toolboxes knocked over. Even one time, several thousand pound jet engine had been lifted from its workbench, crane thing, and smashed almost 30 feet away. The hangars and engine room had cameras covering every single possible entrance with spotlights that made them clear, even in a whiteout. No animals, no people, no anything was ever seen entering or leaving those buildings. Then one day it just stopped. This was not something they just shrugged off. It cost a lot of money and threw a wrench in at least one surveillance routine, which caused a lot of brass from the DOD and the CIA to breathe fire down the base commander's neck. This facility, beyond military function, served as a base for a lot of civilian research as well. There was a full investigation using all manner of scientists, engineers, and specialists. They came up with no satisfactory explanation for what was happening. I do not believe in the paranormal, nor did my father. This is the only spooky type story he had from 22 years in the service. No one knows what happened. It was very strange in every way. Hundreds of people wrote reports and documented it. It wasn't just some grease monkey scratching their heads and randomly guessing. That said, I spoke to my mom and she told me a couple of things I missed. After one of these occasions, the U2 in the shop had all its electronics turned on. Many of the systems in this plane were special built for this airframe and this particular cruise mission. These systems were complex and archaic. Very few people knew how to operate this machinery and the only ones on base that could were two engineers and its crew. It wasn't a simple matter of hitting power buttons and flipping switches from off to on. Another time, three barrels of hydraulic fluid vanished and were never found. They doubted the screaming noise was wind because it came a short, irregular burst and wind never produced those sounds again. They theorized it was a polar bear, but if it was, coincidental timing was extremely uncanny. Lastly, Control picked up a bunch of weird interference and anomalous readings that again had the uncanny timing of happening only when this was going on. They were never able to reproduce these errors in a controlled manner. Next story. One of my drill sergeants actually had a creepy story from one of his Afghanistan deployments. He was infantry, so being in the field and out of missions for multiple weeks wasn't uncommon. One night, while sleeping in a fighting position he dug, he felt something nibbling at his feet. He woke up and kicked it off, and what he saw wasn't any type of marsupial, but a little humanoid figure he could only describe as looking just like Golem. But being in the field with little sleep, he chalked it up to just seeing things. A couple of days later, he and another guy on watch, and the guy pointed out something and said, What the F is that? and pointed at a stone wall in the distance. My drill sergeant looked through his binoculars and crawling across the top of the stone wall was the exact little humanoid creature he encountered a few nights before. Next story. Back in 2012, I was lucky enough to be a private in the army in Afghanistan. I won't bore you with details, but 
I muddled with the radios on a small team in a pretty remote area on a combat outpost. We conducted 24-hour operations, and one night we get this very weird transmission. It came in pretty strong, and we couldn't determine from what direction it was coming in. However, what truly made it odd was what was being said. Now, I'm no linguist, but I know enough about different languages to know this wasn't Pashtun or Dari or even English for that matter. It was straight up Russian. This is when red flags started going up and we began to make phone calls to our operations center and began to wake people up. We had a recording device and managed to catch most of the broadcasts before it stopped completely. We didn't have any Russian linguists with us. We had no idea what was going on. We sent a copy of the recording over high side to get information translated. I knew one of the warrant officers in my unit was also a Russian linguist back from the Cold War era and had him have a listen as well. He was rusty, but got the general gist of the message. It was a distress call asking for help, that their base was being overrun and being attacked. This was even more confusing as there hadn't been a Russian base in Afghanistan since their occupation. We schemed a lot over what caused it, he said maybe it was a pre-recorded beacon that may have just randomly gone off after all these years. Who knows? The only thing that bothered me with that explanation was that the whole thing didn't sound like a pre-recorded audio. There was an obvious level of distress in their voice. Albeit there was no background noise to it. The last story. I was in Iraq in 2006. My month was up to rotate to the FOB for guard duty. We used it as a break from patrolling the city we were in. The place was called Bahari and it was a massive compound that Saddam San used to rape and torture women at. Supposedly, we never actually looked it up. The guard tower was two stories high and you had to use a metal spiral staircase to go up to the second floor. One night, about halfway through our post, me and my buddy are BSing to pass the time and we hear someone sprinting up the stairs in full gear. It was loud. We quickly grabbed our helmets and put them on while I flicked my cigarette out. We waited and waited. Slowly, I turned around to look at the stairs and grabbed my surefire and saw no one at all. I told my buddy, I'm going to go look and make sure the COG isn't lying in wait. I made my way down the stairs to the entrance of the tower and used my surefire to look down the road in front of me and to my right. No one there. No truck snuck up on us and no gator vehicle was outside. The walls on both sides of the road leading to our tower were 20 feet high and had broken bottles at the top, so we knew no one climbed over. Tower 5 was also at the corner of a compound that was miles long on each side. I went back upstairs and told him I didn't see anyone. He didn't believe me and checked himself. When he came back up, his face had turned white and we sat in silence for the rest of the shift. We always traded when we could in order not to go back up there. As in truth, we never wanted to hear those steps coming up the staircase. <laughs>